1: April, 1805. Napoleon is master of Europe. Only the British fleet stands before him. Oceans are now battlefields.
2: April, 1805. Napoleon is master of Europe. Only the British fleet stands before him. Oceans are now battlefields. April, 1805.
3: Napoleon is master of Europe. Only the British fleet stands before
4: him. Oceans are now battlefields. April 1805. Napoleon is master of Europe. Only the British fleet stands before him. Oceans are now battlefields.
5: show was conceived and began production it bridged the gap between the 19th and 20th years since the release of master and commander the far side of the world it seems weird to say but at no point until i was reaching out to the talent surrounding the film and some of our guests that the anniversary even occurred to me it wasn't really until another one heat minute production show was developing the decade project that any of our programming considered the milestone film anniversary master and commander the far side of the world had an all-round enthusiastic reception in a review for The New Yorker, Anthony Lane wrote, For all the foul weather, and despite a charming amputation scene, we feel ourselves to be in good company with these men, and strangely jealous of their packed, and salted lives. At The New York Times, A.O. Scott wrote, that it hums with humour, passion, and life. And Roger Ebert called Master and Commander, glorious and touching in its attention to its characters, and goes on to say that it reminds us of the way that great action movies can rouse and exhilarate us. Can affirm life instead of simply dramatizing its destruction the love for weir's penultimate film seafaring adventure braiding classic style and scale with intimacy and delicate nuanced portrayals of masculinity has only served the complex chemical reaction of its ingredients over time in the anniversary celebration of this film martin pengelly at the guardian wrote that it's a miracle of forceful direct intelligent action cinema at gq gabriella paella interrogated an ongoing obsession with master and commander saying it's a beacon for positive masculinity while kenneth Lowe at pace laments it's unfortunate the last we see of the surprise is her stern as she sails off for another adventure we'll never see when it ends such a perfect tale maybe it's the best we can hope for so here we are with a chorus of incredible celebrants memorializing and praising the sailors in this mainstream naval warfare blockbuster filmmaking that we may never see you again freelance writer with bylines at paste vulture and RogerEbert.com. isaac feldberg
6: you can still tell a human story you can still make a film with an exceptional amount of craft and integrity uh and economy and and you can do it on this massive scale
5: film critic video essayist filmmaker and author Scout to Foyer.
7: Peter Weir directs in calligraphy.
5: Filmmaker, producer, and one half of the incredible team behind the Tony and Ridley Scott, The End of History video essay series, Tucker Johnson.
8: Master and Commander came out shortly after that. We saw it in the theater just like Scout did, which was like a mind-blowing experience.
5: (laughs) Writer and director of Night Owls and co-host of the official Mission Impossible podcast, Light the Fuse, Charles Hood.
9: I mean, now, as I mean, Truman Show and, and Master Commander are two of my absolute favorite movies.
5: Screenwriter and producer of Destroyer, The Invitation, The Mysterious Benedict Society, Crazy Beautiful, Phil Hay.
2: One of, if not my favorite maker of all time.
5: Former film critic at the LA Weekly and Village Voice, turned filmmaker and screenwriter of Black Christmas, and the former host of the Switchblade Sisters podcast, April Wolf.
1: They're just easy, easily identifiable as weird, right? Um, because he hasn't been diluted by Hollywood.
5: One of the greatest living film critics, the author of a Walter Hill film, Tragedy and Masculinity in the Films of Walter Hill, my friend, Walter Chaw.
10: The nature of the poet and the artist and the musician, especially in the world, um, who you are just an instrument that wind blows through.
5: Staff writer and social media manager for Secret Handshake and freelance writer for publications like Vulture, action film aficionado, Brandon Strasnick.
11: Weir is really special because I think he's so—he's um, not in a hurry to get to where he's going, and, and especially in *Master and Commander*, it doesn't make it boring or slow. It actually lets you live with these people.
5: Academy Award-winning director of *Spider-Man: Into the Spider-Verse*, Peter Ramsey. For me, that's
12: his essence—is you know, a guy who can take a story that's happening in a, in a world that you know we know with preoccupations we all get, but infuse this like deeper layer of uh of meaning and questioning into it
5: emmy award-winning sisters behind the award-winning web series emma approved writers on cw's the 100 and producers of woo assassins and star trek prodigy shauna and julie benson
13: and we love Master commander Commander. maybe we should do that (laughs) again
5: and finally senior editor and critic at rolling stone and the former editor of Time Out New York, David Fear.
3: Really just going because I was like, it's Peter Weir. I'll see anything that Peter Weir does. I had been a long-time Peter Weir fan since, you know, seeing Gallipoli as a young, formative lad uh, with my parents, uh, also in a theatre, because I'm that old.
5: Theme Doctor, Andrew Villa, and I am your Captain, Blake Howard.
6: Uh, I think that if you had Master and Commander coming out today, who's to say it wouldn't have been a massive hit? Um, and I think that now that the $150 million budgeted film or, or more is has increasingly become the purview of these effects, glutted Marvel superhero spectacles, it's an exciting time to see... Uh, films like killers of the flower moon martin scorsese's film with 200 million dollar price tag from apple coming up because absolutely you can still tell a human story you can still make a film with an exceptional an exceptional amount of craft and integrity uh and economy and and you can do it on this massive scale i, th- I think that when we look back on master and commander even just like the opening uh, tagline, which has taken on a life of its own on social media now, that oceans are now battlefields, that uh, descriptor is just this incredible moment of scene setting where you understand the potential of what this movie can be. And Master and Commander lives up to that potential as well. It, it has the scale and it has the commitment from all involved, not just the performers, but the filmmaking, the exceptional uh, production values of it you understand how you can see a different vision for the hollywood blockbuster here than the direction that we ended up going in
9: you can i remember you know going to the theater when you see a movie in a the theater it's a big amazing theatrical experience one of my favorite movie theater experiences you know i went to like uh, the uh, Spider-Man 2, I was like kind of I was a little hot and cold on. and then I saw it at the New Beverly probably seven or eight years ago with a crowd and it was like this amazing experience seeing it in a crowd. And I was like, oh my God, I love this movie. How did I not love it from the beginning? Usually it's going to a theater and seeing a crowd in it with a crowd or some some kind of memorable experience that way. I have a memorable sitting on my couch by myself watching Master <laughs> and Commander on DVD in like two thousand eight, I think. So this is like four or five years after it came out, and I I remember just simply my roommate was in the other room and he kept laughing because I was just freaking out while watching the movie, yelling out things like "Oh my god, this movie's incredible!" And it was just <laughs> like I just could not handle how amazing the movie was, and I don't know. It's just funny to me to have a, a very memorable experience of sitting on the couch by myself watching this movie. There's not a lot of those in my lifetime. I feel like of of having a memorable couch watching experience by myself <laughs> <Hot> <laughs> but that's what this movie was because it just it, it that's when the light really turned on of how much of this movie is a masterpiece and now it's very clearly my number one from that year and I think it's one of the best of the last 25 years for sure I don't. I mean I don't know if there was I don't know if I have a really a great story of, of this but I, I remember after that after the, the light really turned on for me when I realized how much of a masterpiece this movie is, I remember, like, talking to friends. I have one friend in particular who Peter Weir, Picnic at Hanging Rock is maybe his favorite movie. And he was my roommate uh, freshman year of college, and he's one of my best friends. And I remember, like, calling him and talking to him because I knew he was a Peter Weir guy. And I feel like the two of us have, have latched on to that idea that Master and Commander is a masterpiece. Why isn't anyone else talking about it? And then I think probably in the last five years, probably on Twitter, I started to see more and more people. And then I started to feel like I was finding my people. Um, I think I think I did a post for the 15th anniversary on Twitter. And I remember getting good reactions to that because I was like, it was 15th anniversary of Master Commander. I was like, this movie's a masterpiece. One of my favorite movies, everybody should be talking about it. And then like there was a pretty decent reaction to it. And I started seeing more and more people talking about it. And that, that so that's probably around the time I guess that that I started to see other people starting to say that as well, but I feel like there was a a, a, a there were years where I was like trying to scream it from the rooftops <laughs> like people <laughs> need to be watching this damn movie it's so good.
1: I I think you know that probably has to do, a little bit with, or it goes hand in hand, the way that Weir approaches story and character and the way that he approaches, uh, framing, of. Of people because he's not afraid of close-ups. Um, in a movie like *Master and Commander*, you might think, "Oh, I'll get I'll get uh, lost in the weeds of people. Mm. I'm not going to remember who these people are. I mean, it's just like it's a bunch of pasty white people <laughs> on a <the> ship, <laughs> lacking vitamin C. And you're like, okay, well, you know, I I'm probably not going to understand it. I'll get lost in the geography of the ship because um, so many directors are so awful at mapping. Um, the sets that they're filming and and giving you any sense of space, but the thing is that you know the way that he is framing all of these characters is he's he's just interested in their faces. Yes. He's interested in like the texture of of you know like the the old man of of, of being like. Um, kind of lingering on like the wrinkles and the shadows on him and there are so many other filmmakers who could focus the camera out to sea to like beautiful images or just you know kind of keep doing grand beautiful uh, you know crane shots or something but he's really focused on the people and the characters and kind of um, making sure that they have their own individual identity you know one line of dialogue here and there and so I do think that goes hand in hand with the, you know the their writing of the script and the way that he's framing it there's there's nothing impersonal about it it is all extremely personal
11: It's funny because I think it came out in kind of a time frame where I feel like in some ways hollywood never, any better than this it, it's just an, yes. it's so it's so crazy to think about like that return of the king and pirates all came out in the same year yes and 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 i'm not the world's biggest lord of the rings guy i think those movies are incredible they're undeniable but it's like i i appreciate them more for the craft that went into them but um with master and commander and pirates and stuff like that um i just these giant like it's not even so much i i I don't know if Pirates fits into this as much other than just being an epic like kind of movie that they just don't make anymore. Um
5: yeah, they they don't it, let people like Gore Vabinsky have this much money. And right. <laughs> like, he's like a he's an outlier. Like we right. thought he was going to take Michael Bay. You know, uh, Yeah, yeah. Uh, he he's he's his I guess place in pop culture because he was, you know, he he does The Ring and then he gets this gigantic movie it's- franchise.
11: And and it's and it's nice that he's able to have a, as much of his personality in those because I do think that he brings a lot of weirdness to those. But I still yes. do think that they represent more of a shift of where Hollywood was going. Where I think Master and Commander is this kind of like really special film, where the Pirates movies I love I love all the first three a lot. I know that people have their problems with them and everything, and I I think that they're very singular. But I also think that there's a lot of um there's a lot of very heavy-handed franchise like we got to get to here to here to here whereas master and commander i really re-watching it the other day just sunk into how many like lovely little grace notes are in this movie that just let you brought up the fraternal you know bond and everything It, it lets these these characters breathe where i feel like weir is really special because i think he's so um he's not in a hurry to get to where he's going and and especially in master and commander it doesn't make it boring or slow it actually lets you live with these people where it's this essentially just a chase film it's it reminded me i i was sitting there you know speaking of australian directors it reminded me a lot of fury road in some ways because it's this prolonged chase where they keep stopping you know catching their breath and then starting up again having like these fights intermittently but in between all that are these moments where you get aubrey and uh maturin just you know doing it doing a jam session on, <laughs> on, on, the, on the strings or, or like or you know uh aubrey every night checking out on his soldiers in, in the uh, infirmary you know you just you don't see stuff like that in you know big team-based movies or stuff like that you don't get these bonding experiences where the the captain or the leader checks in on his people and, you know, just has these real moments of humanity with them. And it's just. And it's also a gamble because, I mean, I, I talked
7: about this. I did a commentary track on Michael Winterbottom's Jude not too long mm-hmm. ago. And Winterbottom is a filmmaker that I, 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 I fell out of love with for a moment, but fell back in love with when doing the research for this, because I, I came to understand that on the one hand, it's a, 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 a surfeit of, Marxist conscience that spurs him to continue to make the movies that he wants to because he's aware that the world is not working the way that it should beyond that he's been trying for as long as I can remember to to d- divine what a paragraph of cinema should look like yes and I think we is the guy who does does it he doesn't yeah. divine he just presents it where every shot comes with its own story where you're looking at this and you think okay Sand goes on the floor to stop the blood from raining because they're going to slip on the blood to go do that thing. They're doing the pumps to get the water out of the brig and the brig goes here and there's blood coming down. And it's just like that explains everything you need to. And thus the prose emerges from the collection of visual information. And and, and something like Master and Commander is a movie almost entirely of prose and thus... In the midst of all that, you find poetry, but it's not a movie where it's poetry first. Poetry comes from the moments where they're playing the violin and the cello together and you see the ship functioning on its own or just from a beautiful shot of the boat at sunset or losing the ship in in, in the fog or, or, the, or the ship in silhouettes just in general. That's where the poetry comes in, but Weir is not poetry forward. Weir kind of waits to find it.
3: I think at a certain point when Russell, when Russell Crowe was really being ushered in to like proper movie stardom, proper Hollywood, big screen movie stardom um, in like the late 90s and the early 2000s, uh, he was just an incredible screen presence. Yes. Not just a big, burly, earthy screen presence the way he is in like LA Confidential. And, you know, he, he plays that role beautifully. And, and that, that's the kind of role where you feel like if you were an early adopter, if you happen to be lucky enough the way that I was, where I went to my local art house and saw some movie called Romper Stomper on a whim and walked away being like, Jesus, that guy, holy shit. Uh, you know, Then you knew that he was capable of being volatile and violent and charismatic and had screen presence. But then you see him go past those roles where you see then – those, that that aspect of him get beautifully weaponized in a movie like Gladiator where uh he gets to basically play all the scales and not just be this like he's a, still a violent volatile present but you kind of understand that there's an emotional undergirding to it uh like it's it's wonderful and you kind of understand why he had such a great run there for a long time but like to, when I was re-watching it this morning it was sort of everything that I really loved and re- responded to about seeing Russell Crowe on the big screen, like in that period, it really feels like it's my favorite Russell Crowe performance. And I say, this as somebody who's a big fan of the insider as a, you know, who, who loves gladiator or at least loved it when I saw it. I don't know if it still holds up who, um, you know, I have a real soft spot for LA confidential and especially his portrayal of a bud, uh, like all those wonderful films he made during that thing. There's something about what he's doing in master and commander where he seems to be channeling everything that you loved about Clark Gable and, yes. and when it gets to that last scene, and he's actually swashbuckling, actually swashbuckling in the 21st century, <laughs> you're you're getting a certain kind of like golden age of Hollywood movie star, like a like a Clark, you know, Errol Flynn or a Tyrone Power, that's combined with this sort of kind of earthy, meaty sort of this scarred figure that you get with a lot of like post-war actors. Yes, and how he's able to kind of sort of keep those two things in balance as he's still being a modern actor, even in, you know, period epics, like those two films, like there's something really wonderful and something really unique and something very rare about that kind of stuff. And like for, you know, all of the beautiful mind kind of stuff that he, I think he, maybe he wanted to do it. Maybe he felt he needed to do it. I don't, I don't know. You see films like master and commander. And you're sort of like, Oh yeah, you belong in these movies. If yes. It, if for no other reason, they need to keep making them so that you can do these roles, and that's what really struck me was just kind of watching, watching what he brought to that role, watching how he fills that screen, remembering how when I saw that film on a huge screen at like my local cineplex, how like he fills that space, he makes you go along with this character, he he sells that friendship along with Paul Bettany. He makes you think that he is a leader of men even even in his darkest moments when he's he's doubting this obsessiveness that is making him go after this ship and put you know his entire crew and his friends at risk um he's just so incredibly compelling and uh this is not a sentence that i say a lot but i i watch the end credits of that film go up and that last great shot of the ship going after the other ship off in the distance knowing that like this adventure is not quite done that it made me miss Russell Crowe. Yeah. This captain, I mean, captain Jack Aubrey is not captain Bly. This is not a captain that, you know, mutiny becomes the only option in mutiny on the bounty because this captain is unfit for leadership and this captain is not a leader of men. And yet, uh, while captain Jack Aubrey is very clearly a leader of men and very clearly somebody who seems to have the respect of his crew, He's, he's fallow. He's not infallible. No. Like he is, he is a flawed man and Russell Crowe sells those flaws as much as he sells the, the, uh, the better angels of Jack Aubrey of, of selling the, like the real, the leadership aspects, the things that would, that you would see show up on a PowerPoint during a corporate meeting about <laughs> yeah. Captain Jack Aubrey, <laughs> uh,
5: Tell you what, it'd make some corporate meetings much more interesting if Captain Jack was out there. front.
3: I would, I would just as soon walk into a CEO's office and uh, have a big picture of Russell Crowe <laughs> looking sweaty and you know stubbled and in his in his uniform, his bloody dirty uniform, being like, uh, "Come on, men! You know we've got one more to the breach," as opposed to like a kitten hanging from a tree <laughs> or somebody climbing a mountain and being like, yeah, go for it. You know, you, well, yeah, exactly. I, I, a poster where it's like, you uh, miss hundred percent of the shots. You don't take. It's just like, okay, whatever. And then when it's, when it's him being like, we're going to the Galapagos islands because I love you Paul Bettany like that. I would, I would, I don't know. At CEO's office on a poster. I would be much more, I'd feel a lot more home. There's a shot that Peter Weir does right up front where you're seeing men climbing up the mast, but you're seeing them behind the mast. Yes. So it's these shadows. You just see these shadows climbing up the thing. And um, it's funny because there's a if you go to YouTube and you search Peter Weir interviews, you'll find a Q&A, that, a BAFTA Q&A that he did with uh, Mark Cromody where Mark Cromody is asking him, like, most, you know, you've been a, a huge fan of silent movies. Have silent movies influenced your filmmaking? Have silent movies influenced your visual styles? Are there aspects of silent movies that have made it into your movies? And Weir goes, I can't really because not really. I mean, I love silent films, but I can't think of anything off the top of my head where you could actually say there was they were a direct influence. And that scene, that scene, you know, counteracts that notion entirely. It is just yeah. absolutely beautiful thing that could have been done in black and white it could have been done by you know carl may or murnau it um it just was absolutely it's absolutely gorgeous so there's that scene I, that really kind of took my breath away right up front
8: and even narratively master and commander i mean it drops you right into the action The the movie opens with a, a cannon battle mm-hmm. like right away and i think it's so funny that A film like that that doesn't bother to slow down it's you know what is it you jump off the back of the truck you're off and running kind of thing that's right and everyone's just hitting the pavement with master and commander if they're not ready to go along with what's happening but that's a perfect descriptor of like how people are watching stuff now yeah yes because you either go okay you are now in this film's universe you're gonna have to get used to how they speak and talk and the the rate at which this movie is going to move forward and where it's going to start and where it's going to go and then you've got a movie like pirates of the caribbean like black pearl in particular since it's the first one and Mm -hmm. that was its competition the box office but it's like again black pearl starts you get a very you get a prologue you get a prologue prologue. orlando bloom the 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 boy on the boat and
7: then you get even more of a prologue as depp comes to town they explain who Kira Knightley
8: is and all that. Whereas there's this very slow ramp up of the narrative, and it's just so funny that like if you if you stood outside the theater as people were buying tickets and you're like, all right, what would you rather watch? Would you rather go in there and watch a movie where within the first three minutes they're firing cannons at the ship, or would <laughs> you rather watch a movie where it, there's like gets a blade can of wood, wood in your neck? You know, yeah, like- <laughs> right. Right, and he pulls it out fifteen minutes <laughs> later. Yeah, like would you rather watch that? Or would you rather watch that? I think everyone would blind, Especially you know, the, the Pepsi yeah. challenge. Yes. Everyone
4: would the say that's after challenge. Goes.
12: Yeah, I mean, but the 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 depth that he goes into and that, you know, obviously it's material that he loves, but it's yeah. it's you can you can feel Yeah, it, it is that effortlessness born out of just a complete knowledge of the of the material and and just uh and just, you know, just not willing to um not willing to compromise it either, you yes. know. It's it's not like he's not his, he's not trying to please people with his films. No. He's really, you know, like master and commander. He doesn't, you know, there's so many things that are unexplained or they're just, you know, here's the vibe of it. And here's the, it's happening. You're there, watch it, experiencing it, you know, all the little rituals and all the little, all the tiny details that, that, uh, that happen. stuff, you know, just the, 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 I love the, the comedic thread of like, uh, the uh the cook.
5: Yes. Just, just being the so angry. Cook. He's so yeah, angry.
12: all the way through and like, you know. <laughs> um just, Kill, just. Killick, played by David Ralph. There's an amazing moment when when um uh, when uh, uh crow like he kinda yells for him and the guy's like literally wow, right I behind him.
4: <laughs> I was
12: like, oh my god, I love it so much.
4: The tune you could dance to, not if you were drunk as
3: Davy's I remembered this scene, even though it had been a long time since I rewatched the film. And as it unfolded on my rewatching for this podcast, I kind of remembered how much it stung when I first saw it. Is when the midshipman is disrespected, mm-hmm. and he uh, and he takes the lash. He takes yes. the lash to the, the person who's disrespected him. And then afterwards, when he goes into the galley underneath, everyone gives him the salute sign. Yes. And it suddenly becomes this thing that completely just unravels him. You know, the, the, the yes, it's is the curse.
5: You, is this what you wanted? Yeah. Is, this, is, is yeah. this what you wanted, our deference?
3: Yeah, our respect, our deference, our respect, but not really our respect. Yes. You know, you want to rule by fear instead of love. Fine. You know, you'll get that. And just the notion of that just that just tears them apart. Um, yeah, it's just it's one of those things. And then the the sheer detail about the ship itself, like the, the notion that um, the notion that O'Brien tried to recreate like as much of the. He basically turns the whaling section of Moby Dick into like <laughs> boys'
11: adventure <of> books, <vegetables,
3: laughs> where everyone's always like, "We know enough about whaling. Get back to Ahab and the, the great white whale." Whereas this is sort of like, "Yeah, you're gonna get your you're gonna get your boys' adventure, but you're also gonna get like some pretty serious like naval battle and schooner history lessons here." So settle down, kids. Like you know, this is how the mast works. Yes. You know, this is what would have been in the on the under the, the ship's uh, galleys by where the captain's quarters were. This is how they would have eaten dinner. Uh, that kind of thing, and uh, the notion that you would try and recreate all of that obsessive detail on screen, you know, is not novel because you got to show, and you can't tell. Yes. And the more you can show accuracy and authenticity what that life was like or what it was like being on those old historical ships, the more your film's actually going to float as opposed to sink. And that, (laughs) that Peter Weir and his production design team, like did that to that degree, to the point where you almost feel like the camera doesn't want to turn away from some dingy little corner by where the cannons are, or wants to focus on where somebody has put like, War machine. I can't remember what they carved near a thing, but it was like the stuff you used to put on the old, the bombers in World War II. They
5: they carved, they all got names for their cannons. Yeah, yeah,
3: exactly. And you could feel the camera not quite wanting to leave. (laughs) It just wants to stay amidst all this like incredible production design recreation. Um, Again, like it's just such a part of the fabric of the film and a fabric of the storytelling as well. And I think that's another reason why people really, they really glom onto this film is because you feel like you're seeing something that's really been recreated. Eight.
13: Nine. Ten. Eleven. Twelve. Cut him
3: down. And then there's the there's the scene, one of the dinner scenes under deck, where I think it's after he's told the anecdotes about Admiral Nelson, and the first thing being kind of a goof, and the second thing being this kind of like, you know, patriotic thing where I'm kept warm at night by, you know, this, the the seal of my king, I think is the line, and he talks about how it's like anybody else that you would have thought it was poppycock, but this is just absolutely this beautiful notion of. You know, a, a true patriot expressing his love and admiration of duty, and then uh, it goes right into a dad joke. <laughs> yeah.
8: yeah,
3: where he completely pulls this on Paul Bettany about the lesser of two weevils. <laughs> and look, Blake. I mean, we're both fathers. Um,
5: it's top tier. It's 10 it's top 10. tier. It's I mean, it's out just out of 10, it's 10, out 10, ten of joke. ten.
3: No notes <laughs> for that dad joke. <laughs> And it's it's funny because like uh you know, I don't think I'm despite the fact that I'm well into my nineties, age-wise, like I I have not quite graduated to the point where I sit in an easy chair and have the history channel on twenty four seven, watching like, you know, documentaries on old um you know, old old battles, old wartime battles.
5: Something we can both look forward to, by the way. Yeah, hopefully.
3: <laughs> exactly. If the bourbon preserves me correctly, yes, I should be able to keep doing that well into my hundreds. Uh, but but you know there are moments where you're, you're sort of like, oh, I haven't quite graduated to dadhood, to that kind of cliché dadhood yet. And yet the minute he drops that dad joke, I was like, it was like somebody just put 10 cc's of sweet morphine into my body, and I was like, oh, there we go. That's the stuff. Um, it's just it's just genius. And the last thing, and this isn't. Um, this was more of a reminder about re-watching this. It was a, re- a great reminder about what a f- fucking amazing movie star Russell Crowe was, or maybe still is.
13: Excuse me, sir, but Mr. Blakeney said that you served under Lord Nelson at the Nile. Indeed,
4: I was a young lieutenant, not much older than you are now, Mr. Pullings. Mr. Pullins was a snivelling midshipman, still yearning for hearth and home. (laughs) Did you meet him, sir?
7: Can you tell me what he's like?
4: I have had the honour of dining with him twice. He spoke to me on both occasions. A master tactician and a man of singular vision. He always said in battle, never mind the manoeuvres, just go straight at him. Some would say not a great seaman, but a great leader. He's England's only hope if old Boney intends to invade. Sir, might we press you for uh, an anecdote? The first time that he spoke to me, I shall never forget his words. I remember it like it was yesterday. He leaned across the table and looked me straight in the eye. And he said, Aubrey. May I trouble you for the salt? (laughs) I've always tried to say it exactly as he did ever since. (laughs) The second time, the second time he told me a story about how someone offered him a boat cloak on a cold night. And he said no, he didn't need it, but he was quite warm. His zeal for king and country kept him warm. I know it sounds absurd, and were it from another man, you'd cry out, oh, what pitiful stuff, and dismiss it as mere enthusiasm. But with Nelson, you felt your heart glow. Wouldn't you say, Mr. Pullings? Indeed, sir. Well, then, he would seem to be the exception to the rule that authority corrupts. To Lord Nelson? To Lord Nelson. To Lord Nelson. Do you see those two weevils, Doctor? I do. Which would you choose?
10: Neither. There's not a scrap of difference between them. They're the same species of
4: Cuculele. <clears throat> If you had to choose, if you were forced to make a choice, if there was no other response, well, then, button, if
9: you're going to push me,
4: I would choose the right hand weevil. It has significant advantage in both length and breadth. There, I have you. You're completely dished. Do you not know that in the service, one must always choose the lesser of two weevils? <laughs> Would pick a <laughs> <laughs> the lesser of I feel like the scene,
1: I feel like this seems silly, but it's, it's the one that kind of brings me the most joy. And I think it's when, uh, Paul Bettany and, and everyone are, uh, finally get to go on land. Yeah. And and I and when um, they want to capture these animals, right? And I think that it's it's such an impulse. Like I'm, I'm very sure that Weir is aware of the impulse of of Paul Bettany's character, um, not realizing that he wants to colonize the the animal <laughs> kingdom. You know, he's he's been you know constantly. Uh, getting on the case of his friend and and just being like brute violence, blah, blah, you know? And then in reality, he's like, I'm going to capture these things. I need (laughs) to own them. I have to have them with me. I must own them. He can't just appreciate them from afar. But just the fact that like, I was like, oh man, don't bring them on the ship. And then they have to leave (laughs) them behind. And the animals are just like, peace out. I'm done. And, but there's like, it's, it's just a nice moment for me to realize that, this character who we see is kind of like the conscience of the ship is also just kind of a piece of shit when it comes to <laughs> like understanding you know their their ownership or their desire to own things of, of beauty and to possess you know because I, I make, like that to
5: make them his so that they'll be named after him or they'll be named after Lord Blake Nancy jokes about you know exactly yeah names. and it's
1: the same kind of colonization it's just that he's he's not aware of it because he sees these animals as lesser and doesn't respect their power and that's something that, that all of these people are doing and so I I I love that scene for what it tells me about him and that he's not just like this do-gooder all you know, uh, angelic figure that we should worship. He, He too is fucked up.
7: side of the island but so there must be at least 10 miles well then there's not a moment to lose
4: that's where i
3: saw my flightless corner come
11: on exactly and and i think it's just it's really kind of enamored with process too and i i really appreciate that and you know talking about the patience that the movie has i i love that in some of the little detours it'll take, it's so into M- um, uh, uh, what am I? Uh, medical ability yeah, yes. to where the movie stops dead a few times to just like show him performing like brain surgery. But it's <laughs> yeah. like thrilling. It's just it's it, it's so it just almost seems like it maybe shouldn't work in some ways because it does keep pausing to. Go off in these little tangents but it just makes everything so much you, you feel so much closer to these people like you said you, you feel you feel like you get a read on them and just as an aside it's funny that you mentioned red red shirts because i i love the kind of um the the little running theme that I've seen on film Twitter here and there when this film comes up is that a lot of people say this is the best Star Trek movie ever made, <laughs> yeah. which, which I can totally see. It's like, it's, you know, Aubrey feels a lot like Kirk. And I think Madden feels like a very fun amalgam of Spock and McCoy. He has like both of their characteristics and it's just kind of funny to see that in one character kind of bouncing off of uh, Aubrey's Kirk, so to speak. And I, I, I've always kind of got what people were saying with that, but it didn't really sink in until this recent rewatch where that entire end sequence, um, it's, I'm sure it's from the novels. I, I've never read the novels, but, um, that entire end sequence where they disguise their ship is feels like something straight out of star Trek. (laughs) And it's, it's just so cool. It's like, just, I, I, this is maybe almost embarrassing to admit because I, I don't normally do this at home, but I've seen this movie like so many times now. And when, you know they—they they think when the the French think that they're you know a ship to be one that they're about to you know just ransack and then he you know they they finally unveil themselves and all the cannons pop out. I leapt off my couch this time because it's just like it's so thrilling. It's just it's it's just so exciting because you're just like. It, you, you know, again, I keep talking about the patience with this movie, but like the way it draws out the tension is just beautiful. And he's so good at that. I I just I don't think of him as someone who particularly does like horror, but I think there, you know, I know Picnic at Hanging Rock could have elements of that.
4: Doctor. No, that's just dried blood. Those are his brains. Oh. Oh. Physician he is. name one of your common
7: surgeons. Can I have the coin, please? Oh, he wouldn't look at you for 110 guineas
1: on land. Only knows his birds and beasts. You show him a beetle, and he'll tell you what it's thinking.
9: To work,
4: you loafers. Heckers. Here's your part. Let's get on with you, gentlemen. Please. Back to work. You're not a penny, right? Are you scorping here?
11: It it's such a smart film in that way, in the way it uh you know, it shows and doesn't tell you, which, you know, everyone that's the key to a great filmmaker is someone who trusts the audience to, you know make these connections with the characters like you brought up the 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 stick bug which is just such a that's such a brilliant little beat and you can see his gears working immediately when he sees <laughs> that bug and something that I really love is earlier in the film when the little boy uh has to have his arm amputated oh. and and Aubrey brings him which is again speaking of horror that's a horrific scene and you don't even see it happen you just see reaction shots and it's still just like it's awful to watch um and when, so after the is over, Aubrey brings him the book on Nelson. And, you know, I think a lesser filmmaker, you know, would have Aubrey explain to him, all, oh, you know, like this, you know, he lost his arm and, you know, you could probably relate to him and everything. But here in this film, you just, he hands him the book and, and he really doesn't say much to him. And he's just, he's, and, you know, we see the, you know, their interaction and then we just get one shot of the illustration of Nelson. And then that's all you need is you see He's missing an arm as well, and and it's just it's such a beautiful moment.
4: Sir. Lord Blakeney, feeling better?
1: Much better,
2: thanks.
4: So. Well, good. The doctor told me. He has all of his major battles in it and, and some very fine illustrations.
13: Thank you, sir. Did you ever meet Lord Nelson, sir?
4: I had the honor and privilege of serving with him at the Nile, a great victory. You can find it in here, actually. Page 135, if I'm not mistaken.
13: I beg you to tell me what kind of man he is.
6: You should read the book. sir. thank you.
11: Speaking of Russell Crowe, quickly, uh, I, I think this might be my favorite performance of his. But I also love, just. Based on following him on Twitter over the years, how much he loves this movie. It's so nice to see that because he'll talk about it a lot, about how special he thinks it is. then there's sometimes where he'll just dunk on somebody for calling it boring. (laughs) And I just remember a very famous interaction where someone said that they found it boring. And, you know, again, I I hate when people tag, you know, the, the artists involved and tell them that their work sucks. And... This person did that, and Russell Crowe was just like, well, you know, your generation's on your phone all the time, so you couldn't appreciate it. It's just (laughs) such a funny... I I love Russell Crowe. He's he's just... It's so fun to see what he's aged into as, like, this big hulking monster because you do forget (laughs) sometimes that he was, like, this beautiful leading man and just had... he's, He's such a great actor.
9: Right,
4: lads. Now, I know there's not a faint heart among you. And I know you're as anxious as I am to get into close action we must bring him right up beside us before we spring this trap. That will test our nerve. And discipline will count just as much as courage. The Acheron is a tough nut to crack. More than twice our guns, more than twice our numbers. And they will sell their lives dearly. Topman, your handling of the sheets to be lovely and unnavy-like until the signal calls for you to spill the wind from our sails. This will bring us almost to a complete stop. Gun crews, you must run out and tie down in double-quick time. With the rear wheels removed, you've gained elevation. But without recoil, there will be no chance to reload. So, gun captains, that gives you one shot from the larboard battery. One shot only. You'll fire for her mainmast. Much will depend on your accuracy. However, even crippled, she will still be dangerous. Like a wounded beast. Captain Howard and the Marines will sweep their weather deck with swivel gun and musket fire from the tops. They'll try and even the odds for us before we board. They mean to take us as a prize. And we are worth more to them undamaged. Their greed will be their downfall. England is under threat of invasion. And though we be on the far side of the world, this ship is our home. This ship is England. So it's every hand to his rope or gun, quicks the word and sharps the action. After all, surprise is on our side.
13: Yeah, we are a writing team, we're sisters, and we know there are no women in this movie, except for, I think, a woman handing off fruit, uh, so we <laughs> should really hate it but uh, for a lot of reasons, but it's so good, it's and it's so of its good. time, and we, uh, so Barry the lead, have written for Star Trek, uh, we wrote on Star Trek Prodigy, and before we wrote on Star Trek Prodigy, in writers' rooms, we would always find our master and commander people, because we would reference the movie, and almost you, every almost single show, to every show.
1: <laughs> there's always
13: matter. someone in the room who also loves it. And then you make the statement of and you're like, it's the best Star Trek movie. That's not a Star Trek movie ever made. And they agree with you. And so we are not the originators of this idea. We no. know, but uh, we are not alone in it.
0: Yeah, that is for sure. Gene Roddenberry was a Navy Naval man, right? Yeah. He was in the Navy. And when he created the original Star Trek and even in the creation of the next generation, one of the things that was very clear and he told people this was that the captain role even though kirk and picard are very different men in some ways each of them has some core relational similarities to horatio hornblower yes. because gene really loved those books which also is kind of of the period um so it's it, it's not surprising that there are I think a lot of these kind of elements that flow into Trek because it's about the ship. The ship is is a, a key piece of what makes Star Trek, Star Trek. Um, almost every single show is named for its ship, even in <laughs> all of the spinoffs. There are only one or two that are not. And and in those cases, they are referencing something within- About the crew, like the prodigy. The crew <laughs> or the canon, right? Or the mission. Um, and that's so when we talked about what are the things that make a, a great Trek film or even a Trek episode,
12: mm-hmm.
0: you know, you're right. Like the crew and that relation, those relationships, that's a big piece of it. Um, and how that plays out, that there is more to it than just the plot, that, they, that you are really digging into these characters. And one of the things that we really like about Star Trek in some ways is that once it jumped to the, the feature film realm, they did not handhold the audience into telling you this is Captain Kirk and he's yeah. this guy and this is, you know, Commander they Spock. They just assumed you knew. You, you <laughs> knew or you didn't. In a way, get I on mean, board. And and obviously, we can pontificate about David Lean's motion picture and relation relational yeah. <laughs> relationships to Peter Weir's work as well, because obviously, I think that has been uh, evoked a few times mm-hmm. uh, in talking about the directorial uh, similarities between those two men. But I, I think from that high, high level, that's that's the framework in which we sort of come to this and look at it. And then we sort of go down further from that. And so
13: when we started to go down further, we're like, okay, so Russell Crowe's character is basically a mixture of Kirk and Picard. Aubrey, yeah. Aubrey. Uh, and then you've got, um, he's sort of more Bones and Spock mixture, but he's more, um,
0: Maturin, yes. Yeah, Maturin
13: is more, uh, he's he's more of a scientist. He, he sort of feels like, on, on our show, Prodigy, we had a character named Rock Talk, who yeah. she's this big uh, Bricarian, and everyone thinks she's gonna be security officer, and she really just wants to be a scientist, and it's sort of that's how we think of uh, his character, is that he really wants to be a scientist, but he's sort of the most educated, intelligent man on the ship, so he's sort of forced into being the surgeon as well.
8: <laughs>
7: yes.
13: Um, so, you can like actually do one to one comparisons with all the characters as well. And that it starts like, to break down at some point. It but.
0: breaks down a little bit. And so trying to do literal transmutation of like or trans you know, yeah. trans, like just that parallels of those two pieces, it does break down a little bit. But it is much more about the ethos of it and the feel that you have when you watch these movies and what they evoke for you as an audience member. And one of the reasons we love Star Trek is that sense of wonder. Is that adventure? I mean, every movie has a great adventure plot. There's always a compelling antagonist or villain. Mm-hmm. In the case of like the motion picture, there's no real villain right. so much. It is this mysterious force that they are investigating and looking into, which is what's interesting. Um, but it also serves as a danger to the ship, a threat. And show. you yeah. know, and <laughs> the stakes of that. And what what does that really mean? And so I, I think that, yeah, I mean, talking about what are the great Trek films, you're the films that for us are the best Trek films and we'll, we'll get reference. And we don't want anyone to
13: hate on us because we love all of them. <laughs> this is coming no, from a place of love. It's, it's already the things
5: line. it's the things you most love.
0: Yes. You have
5: a more than enough love. That's okay. It's fine.
0: Right. So so for us, I mean the motion picture, while most people there is that that adage of like the even number of films. Are better yeah. than odd-numbered films mm-hmm. um, I still think that there would be no Star Trek movie series and s- subsequent TV series without the motion picture yeah. yeah and the fact that it brought a different flavor of space opera to the big screen and you have a lot of a lot in David Lean to thank for that you know yeah. in terms of I mean, he spends like five minutes showing you the Enterprise. Like, and that's the it's beginning
13: coming. of Master Commander, isn't it? Like <laughs> yeah. you spend so much time just going around the ship, looking at the water, which would be the stars. You know, you're just, you're really seeing them kind of wake up and get going. Even the, what is the the bell? What's the sound on the Enterprise? The boo
0: Yeah, the, what, the, you know, the that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, all of those things are ship. Yeah, yeah. Oh, those, those are, I bambole. mean, but all of the, you're right. I mean, it's to bring you into the world a little bit, right? It's yeah. to immerse you immerse you and that's the thing i think also that that feels like when you watch this film you're being immersed in the time period Mm -hmm. but also in the culture in the language of of the of the naval of the british navy which is
13: very star trek there's all these cool terminologies and everybody's got a position and obviously there's the one-to-one ratio of it being a ship and all of those commanders and positions but you've also got you know a mission that they're on right. and you there's as shauna said the antagonist and then you're also exploring so when they get to the galapagos we're we're exploring strange new worlds and seeking out new life and new civilization literally yeah exactly. so um it's a it's a new planet to them it's a new look at all these weird birds and all this stuff. so it's it's so great sorry yeah. i'll k- k- stop interrupting shauna no no i think i, I think you're just gonna keep bouncing I, off of each I other i think
0: we i think we got at least the base level of so what if you the haven't question bought into 10 it 10 minutes ago. So <laughs> if you haven't agreed with us yet that it is a Star Trek uh, film, ben. You will continue. But yes, yeah, Star Trek is a franchise that has been going for well more than 50 years now. Yeah. And I, I, I believe that the type of show that it has been in all of its incarnations, there's a reason for that success and, and at its core, it's because of the characters' that you love, the, the world you love. And I, I think that is the big reason and success in retrospect, obviously, and later times as people come and discover Master and Commander is that same sort of uh, relationship. And that's the thing that when, as writers, we always try to bring to anything that we're writing is those relationships.
13: Character first.
0: Yeah. Character first and the world and creating a really immersive world that people can sort of get lost in
10: it's a movie about male relationships and, you know, it's like, it's, it's hard to talk about male relationships without feeling like, yeah, you know, men probably should ha- get less of the stage. I, I get it. Yeah. It's really <laughs> hard to, but I still think it's difficult. It's rare to find male relationships that are so beautifully sensitively written as they are in master and commander and beautifully performed as they are in master and commander, you know, to your point, the scene with the self surgery and, You know, like Jack is like, oh, you know, I've seen so many things, you know, (laughs) know, but clearly very disturbed, you know, and I love the, you know, when, when, when Matron looks over and kind of laughs and then like is in pain, you know, he's like kind of thinks it's funny. It's like there's something so true about these male relationships. is part of the reason that I love Walter Hill. Yes. <laughs> Cause you know, all, all, you know, Walter Hill is like our, you know, he's like James Dickey. He's like, he's a poet of male relationships um, and the tragedy of of the masculine, which is hard to talk about too, because men are the responsible for all the bad things in the world. But there's a tragedy about men, you know, in that in that there's, you know, we are not allowed to show some of those things. You know, about five years ago, I decided I was going to start to Tell my friends that I love them. And it changed everything. It was really, really hard the first couple of weeks, the first couple of months. And then but now I do and it changed it's changed my life. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just made me a better and happier person. And now I'm grateful that I've done that. You know, I, I have a friend who killed who killed himself a couple of years ago. The last thing I said to him was, you know, hey, I know that you're in trouble and you're feeling bad. Come come stay. We have an extra, you know, room and I love you. And that's it. You know, he never responded. I don't know if he got the message. I'm sure he did. I don't know. It's not good to think about, but I'm glad I said it. And I don't know if a different version of me would have said it. Master Commander is this movie that's about, you know, men and uh, uh, vulnerable and afraid and sad and and happy and, you know, all these things. And it's like, that's for as much as men are centered in like 90% of everything that we see, we still don't see this side of men. We don't see the side of men that are in doubt or men that are whatever, you know? And I, I think there's something that's really insanely beautiful about that, you know? And and, and I think that when we talk about The British of too in relation to this and, you know, and Peter Weir as a, as a film artist and a poet, is that, you know, all of these issues about you know, with, with Coleridge in particular, with self-doubt. You know, one of his, one of my favorite poems of his. The, the poem that made us decide to name my son Coleridge was uh, "Frost at Midnight," where he talks about, oh, poem. yeah, yeah, he talks about his his infant son and his hopes for him and this idea that maybe he wasn't going to be a good father for him, and the fears that a young father has and all the fears that I, I had uh, as a father, you have as a father. You, you, you know, Coleridge is a, uh, he he. he He's not a Ponce, you know, he's not pompous like Percy Shelley and Byron. He's not, <laughs> you know, he's not like, you know, he's not he he doesn't have his head in his cloud in the clouds like Keats did. He's not, you know, he's not a madman like William Blake was. He is of the six major British romanticists. He's the he's the guy that's broken. He's the guy who is uh is is searching. Um and he yeah, his poems speak it. And and Rhyme of the Ancient mayor speaks of brokenness and speaks of sin and the inability to escape it. And ultimately, the purpose of the story of the mariner's story, the compulsion to tell it over and over again, the re- the way that he finds the next person to tell it to is he can just tell by looking at them that they need to hear the story. Yes, and this is the time that you need to hear the story about being humbled. Yes, <laughs> about seeing order in nature and about seeing these things. And so, you know, you read. Ancient mirror, when you're little, or you hear it as a bedtime rhyme, and it's, you know, it's Yambic tetrameter. It's very, it's like the same, um, uh, same meter as hymns. It's very easy to read. It's rhymes, sing-songy. It's it's all those things. As you get older and you read it, you realize what it's really about, is about the responsibility you have to the next generation of people tell the right story. It's like Kendrick Lamar's, you know, Pimpin' of the Butterfly, right? <laughs> the responsibility you have to go back to Compton and tell your story after you become a butterfly. And so images of nature, images of these creatures evolving, the, the film's a masterpiece, you know? And, and it, it's, again, overused term because masterpiece means the first time you know something's great, but every time, you know, these seven or eight of them that you are reminded of how great, truly great Peter Weir is, um, not just as a film, Maker, but as a poet, uh, same with Jane, Jane Campion. Those two guys, uh. Uh, and 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 and, and the, the, they're both Aussies. It's not fair, um, <laughs> but something about your landscape, right? Maybe something about the story of your place has really informed these the, these writers who to delve into the mystery of place and the post and the power of words and poetry of words.
3: master and commander um, is all about like telling the story of this obsessive captain chasing the ship partially for queen and country and partially because for his own you know obsession over catching this thing over not being beaten you've done this to me two times there won't be a third time and partially about this friendship between these two men (laughs) And now that friendship gets tested and it's partially about leadership and it's partially about um, the actual culture on this ship. And the story itself is fairly simple. It's just that it takes a lot of detours and tangents that actually kind of lead up to something as opposed to having a bunch of set pieces that kind of make sure that your pulse stays at a certain BPM for two hours. Yes. But I think you're absolutely right. I feel like the two hours of watching that movie, even though there are what you can accurately characterize as slow moments and slow scenes. It never feels slow. No, never. It just feels deliberate. It feels, uh, it's letting you marinate in something. It's letting you actually get to know these people. Um, even people besides, you know, Russell Crowe and Paul Metney's characters, you start to get to know the other men on the ship a little bit better. I had forgotten because it'd been a while since I'd seen this film. I'd forgotten that there's not one, but two trips to the Galapagos islands Thirty years before Darwin went there. That <laughs> would be if you would, you know, be so bold and ballsy as to try and make this film now, wouldn't that would be the first thing studio executives would cut.
4: How long does the captain intend that we stay? Do you know? Oh, a week perhaps. A week? There's no great hurry.
12: Mustn't we make haste for I'm the, not not even cases.
4: Sure it was the we sighted. And if it was, she would be well away by now, like looking for an honest man in Parliament. No, we shall head home before peace breaks out with France, God forbid.
10: Jack, I fear you may have burdened me with the debt I can never fully repay. Posh.
4: Name a shrub after me. Something prickly and hard to eradicate. A shrub? Nonsense! I'll name a great tortoise after you. <laughs> Testudo or
2: well um i love master and commander and i think that there's many uh extremely spectacular moments in the film and many like i you know it's classic scenes of the cinema that are in that film (laughs) but i want to choose uh my my favorite character is um tom pullings played by james darcy first of all i love james darcy as an actor he's I just think he's one of the best actors working in so many different, um, so many different films, and there's something about, uh, for me, the moment, incredibly satisfying moment where um, uh, Captain Aubrey gives Tom his command yes. and gives him the command of the ship, which I found to be, I don't know, I mean, I think I always love those characters who are um important but they're not the story's not about them yes and maybe maybe it's cuz i can see that character through my own eyes or i can see through the eyes of that character you know like yes. as an audience member i'm never usually imagining myself to be the captain or you know i'm not imagining myself to be uh you know uh steven the paul bettany's character i'm just a, <laughs> you know what i mean but tom I feel like I understand, you know, and <laughs> and so there's just anyway. There's something about again, Peter Weir, like the the moments of they're always in his in his in his films. The characters were not the lead characters. There's always interesting people, yes, everywhere you look in his films. And I think Tom is a great example of that. And uh, you know, so I to see him and his sort of competence and his inherent his inherent goodness rewarded, I think is a beautiful grace note for that film, uh, in my in my opinion. So that, of all the many that I could choose, I think that's the one that just hits my heart somehow.
4: Work, yeah. Sir, the uh, whalers are all aboard and that's the last attachment of Marines. Good, good. I think I shall return to the Galapagos. Take on some food and water and leave the doctor a few days to find his bird. Very good, sir. You, however, shall take the Acheron south to For all the prisoners there. Refit is necessary, and we shall rendezvous in Portsmouth. I believe uh, Mr. Hogg would be a good choice for Sailing Master, however. That will be your decision, Captain Pullex. Your orders. Thank you, sir. Godspeed. And to you, sir. Mr. Mowat. With pleasure, sir. Good luck to you. Thank you, Doctor. Good luck, Tom. See you in Portsmouth. Good, Good luck, luck, luck days, Tom. Tom. Thank you. Huzzah for Captain Pullings. Hip hip, huzzah! Huzzah! Hip hip, huzzah.
12: Huzzah! Hip hip, huzzah! Huzzah! Good luck, sir.
2: Good luck, Captain. That is just a beautiful expression of leadership of the like of preparing someone to eventually um be your equal eventually be your be succeed you eventually be you know be part of a, a continuum you know and in this case about the 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 continuum of the navy and how it will go on and i think um i think you make a good point like in, in witnessing leadership in a film is actually quite um appealing especially when it it just felt real to me. It felt like the relationship and that kind of mentorship felt extremely real.
8: Yes. And,
2: and 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 in a way, not spectacular in making it great that like this is like it makes you understand how, you know, at its best, those organizations can work and, yes. you yeah. know, how the Navy could work if it had good captains and, and
9: good officers and good crew. I could put on any scene and any scene would be <laughs> that <laughs> I'm, I'm in because, because what well, I think part of it is the experience of this movie and getting. This is the thing. Like, I think Peter Weir is so incredible. He's, he's, he's so, I think, you know, when you have got a great, it's like a jokingly, I use this term like cinema de joie, which is yeah. like cinema of joy. And I, like, I think there are filmmakers who really can, kind of engineer joy with this, like, uh, and they, I think John McTiernan, John McTiernan is my favorite director. I think he's, he's done it so well with so many of his movies like Die Hard. And you've got the, you know, when they break open the safe and Theo says Merry Christmas, and you've got Beethoven's ninth, which is also uh, Ode to Joy is the name of yeah. the, the piece of music. Like that, there's like that. when they open the safe, there's, you know, the finale of Thomas Crown Affair with the bowler hats, that, that whole heist with, with Nita Simone's Sinner Man. Like it's like moments of pure cinema that were carefully set up and paid off. And movies are, or at least can be, a series of buildups and releases. And when those releases can hit you in a cathartic bout of joy, to me there's nothing better, nothing better. And that's why McTiernan is my favorite director because he's so good at that. And there are obviously so many other directors who are so good at that too, like Tarantino and De Palma and, and Hitchcock, I think does that as well. Maybe that's not joy so much with Hitchcock, but I feel like- It's relief. It's really it's, it's it's a series of like buildups and releases, and Peter Weir has that so much for I think Truman I think Truman Show and Master and Commander have that where it's a it's almost a buildup for the whole movie yes. to the ending. And I think part of my obsession with Truman Show comes from the release of that ending and the joy that comes from that ending, the music and the the scene and how it plays out. And and I get that same feeling for Master and Commander in the last scene as well. Just the idea that this adventure is going to it's going to keep going like yes. i'm just like i'm so i like want to stand up and cheer at the end of the movie when you when jack realizes oh the captain of the of the acheron is still alive and oh, we better go escort that ship in because the guy who he passed I, off is, is I, going to be gonna trust in trouble. that guy he's yeah. good <laughs> he's good and like so, that it's that it's that feeling of and and with the music too, It's just it's I feel like it's it's like I said it's like kind of it's a like kind of a lame term maybe, but pure. It's like pure cinema, yeah. Where you have got the visuals combined with some you know with music, and it's just like you're soaring. You feel like you're soaring. And it, and to me, it's like you put on any scene of Master Commander. And I'm like, oh, I want to watch it to the end because I want to get to that feeling again when I get to the end of the movie that I have like with both Truman Show and Master and Commander. That feeling at the end where I'm just like, oh my god, I just I feel like I could fly.
5: Podcaster and Commander
4: is
1: produced by Blake Howard on the far side of the world.
13: You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator.